This episode of No Meat Athlete Radio is brought to you by 10,000, makers of high-quality, super-comfortable training shorts. 10,000 is offering NMA Radio listeners 15% off your first purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code NOMEAT to receive 15% off. That's T-E-N-thousand.cc and enter code NOMEAT. This episode is also brought to you by Athletic Greens with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. Visit athleticgreens.com slash NOMEAT to get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Hey everybody, it is Matt and Doug here, but we're not going to be here for very long, are we? No, we are not. We're handing it off today to, yeah, to our friend Matt Tolman and guest Miyoko Schinner, who, little known fact, Miyoko and I hosted a uh, Vegan Italy tour a long, long time ago. Before you she know, was I've Miyoko, always been, Miyoko. I've always been jealous that I wasn't a part of that tour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was awesome. So. <laughs> I know that's why I was jealous. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. It's my, it, I mean, Miyoko's super famous now with and her stuff. Shortly after all that, got into all these stores and everything. So, uh, it's people enjoy that trivia when I share that. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't realize you knew her before she was big. Yeah, I mean, she was she had books and things out then, and she was known among vegan cheese people as the vegan cheese woman. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was you know she wasn't known among my neighbors as the vegan cheese woman. So, <laughs> different. <laughs> Yeah, now, I mean, now she even has, like, food trucks, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so we'll, we'll hand it off to them and uh, let Matt take it from here. Great. Well, Miyoko Shinner, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, more importantly, thank you for creating such delicious cheeses. Um, I, I should say spreads and everything else. I, I know you guys touch more than that, but they have been a staple in our home for years and and easily are one of the uh favorites for me and uh, and also for my son so so thanks for all you do to make this lifestyle so much more enjoyable well thanks matt i'm glad you enjoy them and thanks for having me on the show um so i think the only place to start is at the beginning and if i if if my diligence has served me um you have been a vegan since the 80s um, which is also yeah. when you were about when you were born, not to date. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so when, uh, so what was that transition like? What what was the impetus? And and yeah, just tell us uh, kind of your story from from that angle, and then we'll get a little bit more into your your entrepreneurial journey. Sure. Well, I was already a vegetarian um, in an act of defiance of the. Uh, very wise age of 12, I decided that I was going to become a vegetarian and my parents practically disowned me. My mother stopped cooking for me and I was left to fend for myself, which was probably the best thing ever because I learned how to cook. Uh, And uh, when I was in my 20s, I became a vegan. I was living in Japan um, and I had a subscription to the Vegetarian Times, which was the only, uh, only thing in print about vegetarianism at the time. Um, and of course, this was you know way before the internet or anything. There was really no way to get information, but I had this, this magazine that came all the way across the Pacific Ocean once a month. And I remember reading some article about um, the impact of dairy farming. Um, and I think that was like kind of a rude awakening because you know, dairy products were my, um, 
my go-to. That's what I lived on. I thrived on cheese and butter, heavy cream. I mean, everything I, for me, the, the good life was represented by how much butter and heavy cream you could put into a dish. Um, and so um, I read this article and I remember thinking, wow, it, it's not only unhealthy for me, it's, it's bad for everything else. Um, and so I decided, okay, I might as well just go vegan. And at the time, I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Was it vegan or vegan or what was it? And th there was no one around me that was vegan. And a tr and a truth be told, um, you know, as long as the vegan police aren't listening, um, I was a cheating vegan for a few years because occasionally I just would, you know, melt down in front of a cheese platter or a pizza or something like that. Um, but for the most part, um, that was the beginning of my, my vegan journey. Um, it took me a few years before I just said, okay, I'm not cheating ever again. Um, and of course, the more I learned about it, uh, I came back to the United States uh, in the late 1980s. Um, and then I think John Robbins' book came out a, few, a couple of years later, um, Diet for a New America. And uh, information just started coming out about all of this, um, which over time, of course, uh, solidified um, my convictions, I think. Um, still, there were very, very few vegans around. Uh, I started a vegan bakery in, in San Francisco, which morphed into a restaurant, uh, which morphed into a natural food company. Um, there was a vegetarian society in, Cal in San Francisco, and that's how I met a handful of, of very quirky vegans. I, I think you know, so not everyone was vegan at the time. They were, they were mostly vegetarian. I think that's as far as most people could come, could go at the time. And, and the vegans were just this grouchy bunch of old people that, um, you know, would take like eight ounces of food to a potluck or something, you know, of, I remember going to these vegetarian society potlucks and I, I'd always bring an abundance of food because that's who I am. I just, you know, like probably enough to feed everybody. Um, and I remember eating some of the other food and it was as if someone had taken a syringe and sucked the flavor out of it. I mean, the food was so bad. Um, and that's, you know, that's why veganism got a bad name because food was not good initially. Um, and the people were grouchy and weird and quirky. All of it was true. I mean, they didn't look like you, honestly. Um, and they had no energy. They had no spark. They were just like this hunched over. I just remember so many of these events and going, whoa, what have I gotten myself into? Um, but, you know, I, I felt like it was the right thing to do. So I just kept on keeping on. So, so, you know, I always uh, say that, you know, we are all sort of the billboard for this lifestyle. Yes. Um, and, and therefore I think it's important to try to be the opposite of what you described you know, grouchy, hunched over, lacking energy, and your food uh, lacks taste um, is is sure to turn off most people, um, and certainly not going to attract a lot of them. Um, but yet, you didn't shy away from it or even run the other direction. Was it just you know your your love of animals, your desire to be the change in the world? I mean, what what was it that I mean, deep down, kind of kept you going in this direction? I'm yeah. so glad you did because obviously if, if the if the food continued to taste that way, we wouldn't be here probably. <laughs> well, well, my goal when I went vegan was to be able to recreate uh, the great cuisines of the world as vegan options. 
And I, I mean, I was on a mission from day one to prove to the world that vegan food could be phenomenal. So that's what I was doing in my Tokyo apartment. I was hosting these 12 course tasting menus on Friday nights, inviting people to, uh, to taste my wares. I wanted to open a restaurant in Tokyo, a vegan restaurant in Tokyo, like a high-end vegan restaurant, but I just never got it off the ground. I, you know, that was my goal was I knew I could do it. I knew I could make the food taste good in a way that no one had ever had before. And I wanted to show the world. I didn't want to make brown vegan food that was devoid of character and flavor. I wanted to make beautiful, colorful, elaborate cuisine that would just blow people away. And, you know, I did that in my Tokyo apartment and it led to writing my first cookbook, which was published in 1990 called um, The Now and Zen Epicure. And I think it was probably that and Ron Pickens book, I think, and they came out within two months of each other, I believe, were the first two, I would say, um, cookbooks focused on high-end Epicurean, uh, an Epicurean approach to vegan food. Um, you know, I, I mean, I used to bake these big, beautiful European style cakes with multiple layers and chiffons and buttercreams and um, that, you know, I was on a mission to prove that you could do this. So when I opened up the Now and Zen Bistro in San Francisco, you know, that was where we served, um, we served bacon, for example, no one had vegan bacon at the time. This was in the early 1990s. And we had, you know, a vegan um, veal parmigiana and uh, um, cabbage rolls with, with wild rice and red wine uh, uh, reduction sauce and, and things like that, that were, uh, we had a, a tofu bourguignon, um, just no one really combined, they didn't put vegan and French cuisine in the same sentence. And I wanted to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, the restaurant got a lot of traction. Uh, we even got featured in United Airlines Hemispheres magazine. Um, on, you know, like, like four days in San Francisco, go to now and Zen uh, Bistro, et cetera. Um, but, you know, it was, the world wasn't quite ready. I don't think at the time, you know, early 1990s, they weren't quite there yet. Um, but that was, that's what kept me going was that, you know, I, I've just been on a mission for 35 years. Hey, it's Matt and Doug here interrupting the interview briefly to take care of some quick business. This episode is brought to you by 10,000, makers of high-quality, super-comfortable training shorts and shirts. Doug, we're both fans of Rich Roll around here. Yeah, we are. Yes, we are. Did you know that one of Rich's favorite running shorts is the 10,000 Session Short? And I have to admit, he has great taste. I've been running in the Session Shorts for the past few weeks. They have no-bounce pockets, breathable and lightweight shelf fabric with stretch, and I opted for the built-in liner, which helps prevent chafing. You know, I have also been running in those shorts, and the, he does have great taste. They they are great. They're the first pair of shorts I've ever had that had the built-in liner, mm-hmm. and I kind of, or like you know, not the not so just it's the, like a compression short. Liner, yeah, like so. a compression short. This yeah. part of the short, and I gotta say, I've been missing out. They're awesome. They are really awesome. I love them too. I like the stretch fabric. Um, for some reason, that just I just like that my shorts are stretchy. I can just reach down and stretch them anytime. <laughs> I don't know why I like it. <laughs> do, do stretchy shorts make you want to do like more? You know, like stretching. I think well, I've here's what I like. You can wear these shorts to to anything, and it just looks like a fitness short kind of. You just look mm-hmm. like a cool kind of stylish guy, and I that's why I wear or, or woman, I'm sure. But I just I don't know. I've been wearing the soccer practice, and somehow when I show up in the soccer practice, then I'm so much more likely to 
to actually go run during the practice. <laughs> <laughs> but I, like, I couldn't. That's I don't know. Good. If a pair I, short actually gets you to go run, then that's yeah. That's I mean, I couldn't quite do that with regular running shorts. I don't know. I'm not just gonna show up to soccer practice in those. But anyway, <laughs> more importantly, how come? How come? It's not enough that you and I are fans of these, and we have great taste. How come we have to put Rich Roll into our ad? <laughs> <laughs> You know, we don't. I actually added that in. I just, oh, I don't know. I thought, I, you know, <laughs> originally I was going to read the ad, and I know that you're a big fan of Rich right now. You've kind of had this, like, you know, rekindling of your friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I just thought that would be a tidbit of information that, that, that you would like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. All right. At the core of 10,000 are three core training shorts built for all the ways you train. The interval short, versatile, and great for hit, spinning, metcons, short runs, and anything else you can think of, like a hill workout like I did yesterday. The foundation short, built for durability, for tough gym days and outdoor adventures, and the session short, super lightweight, perfect for running, yoga, and mobility. 10,000 is a direct-to-consumer company, no middlemen, so you can get premium fabric, trims, and techniques that other brands simply cannot afford. Plus, they collaborate with a team of over 200 athletes, like Rich Roll. Thanks, Doug. We're putting that in again there. Who (laughs) test their gear to ensure the perfect design, fabric, trims, and fit. Just pick the short that's best for your training and then personalize it with custom liner and inseam options and then get free shipping and returns and their special lifetime guarantee. 10,000 is offering NMA Radio listeners 15% off your first purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code NOMEAT to receive 15% off. That's T-E-N-thousand.cc and enter code NOMEAT. This episode is also brought to you by Athletic Greens, the daily nutritional beverage everyone is raving about. Including Rich Matt- Roll, right? <laughs> including Rich yeah, I think he is really yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I got to bring him into all these. Yeah, Matt, um, you know I got a daughter. She's uh, she's going back to school or preschool. She is, uh, you know, doing all those four year old things like not washing her hands as much as she should. So I gotta, I, you know, I gotta keep my immunity feeling good. I gotta be on top of my nutrition. So I've been pouring a just. A bowl or a cup of athletic greens with water, one scoop of water, and bam, vitamins and minerals galore. One tasty scoop is all you need for 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. And it all works together to increase energy and focus, aid with digestion, and it supports a healthy immune system, which we all want right now. We do all want that. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade and counting. That is pretty cool. Always looking at that science. They invest in the most absorbable and natural sources of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality ingredients. And right now, Athletic Greens has got you covered for year-round immune support by offering the Nomad Athlete Radio audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you use our link. Visit athleticgreens.com slash nomeat and join health experts, athletes, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health. Again, visit athleticgreens.com slash no meat to get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All right, so let's get back to the interview. There's so many different directions to, to take that. I, I'm uh, maybe just partial uh, selfishly to, to get into Miyoko's, the, the company. Um, uh, so uh, 
trying to not not skip ahead. Um, we should start at the beginning of of that. So you have a restaurant in San Francisco. Um, it's being featured on mainstream magazines like Hemisphere. Um, tell us a story from how you go from there to a dairy-free creamery that we all now know and love. Sure. I mean, the restaurant was a hole in the wall uh, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. You know, as they say, the three most important things if you're going to open a restaurant are location, location, location. And I had the perfect location because it was across the street from my childcare center for my son. That's how I chose it. So in other words, it was like in the middle of nowhere um, on a side street in a residential area. It was just like really <laughs> the worst place to start a restaurant. But, um, you know, I just, I just, you know, it was the first time I was doing something like that. I really didn't know the, you know, what was right to do. Um, but and it, it was, a, it was a, I can tell you there were stories from hell. It was just like a, that book written by Anthony Bourdain, Kitchen Confidential. Everything that happened in his book happened in mine. You know, the, uh, the chef who was a drug addict, the, uh, the, the, the manager who burned his apartment down around the, around the corner from the place because he was a cocaine addict and he burned his dog that was locked in a cage. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the money that was stolen from the till on a regular basis. Um, I mean, I can't, it, it, it was just the assistant manager who decided to quit one night, hired a taxi and took every last bottle of wine in the car. I mean, it was just such, <laughs> it, it was a world that I wasn't, you know, I just wasn't ready for. Um, I was just not a good manager um, in, in that respect of being, you know, being able to find people that were professional and behave professionally. Um, and uh, anyway, so I had an opportunity to kind of morph it into a natural food manufacturing company because um, we had this product called the Unturkey that was served out of the restaurant over Thanksgiving. And it was really popular. People were buying entire Thanksgiving dinners out of the restaurant. One year I sold like a thousand of them out of the restaurant. And, and the next year I decided to um, just see, you know, hey, let's let's go to the this trade show, see if I get traction and uh, let's get out into the marketplace. And I found it was extremely successful. So um, I, I got a lease and we started, I just, I sold the, the assets to the restaurant and I got into the natural products business and we were making meat alternatives back in the 1990s before people knew what meat alternatives were. They were called analogs at the time, meat analogs. And they weren't sexy. And maybe, you know, if you got lucky, you'd find them in a dusty corner of your natural food store. But um, anyway, so that's what I did for a few years. Um, uh, I sold that company mainly to get out of debt. I made no money. Um, and uh, I decided to just get out of food for a while because I, I couldn't make anything tick. I didn't seem to have the magic touch. And I, and I went, I actually got involved in real estate for a few years. And I was really good at that um, until I got into my 50s and I looked at my life and I thought, whoa, it's all over. I mean, I spent 50 years and never really succeeded and it's all downhill from here. Now, you know, now it's, I'm approaching retirement. I got a comfortable life, a nice house, you know, kids that are growing up. And I guess it's just a television show and a glass of wine every night for the rest of my life. And I got really depressed and I decided to snap out of it and realized 
I need to do something I'm passionate about, something that I believe in. I need to create value for the world. Otherwise, my life is empty. So I wrote another book. I'd written um, three books that had done okay up until then with a small publisher. And I decided to write um, a book on vegan cheese because I it's just something I've been playing around with for many years. And um, I just decided I'm going to give it one last try. Um, and I thought, this book will never sell. No one who's interested in vegan cheese anyway, because there were no vegan. I mean, Daya had just hit the marketplace, I believe. But other than Daya, I mean, I remember back in the 90s, um, probably before you were vegan, we had something called um, Vegan Rella. And I was so excited when I found it. It was, it was just, it was worse than worse, or I don't even what you call it. <laughs> but it like, you just, couldn't eat it. It was awful. Um, and when Daya came along, I thought, oh my God. And but what really shocked me was that um, I think vegan rella was made out of soy milk or something like that. So it at least had some nutrients in it, but Daya was oil and starch. And to me, that wasn't food. I felt like I can do better than this. I felt like, okay, I'm, I mean, I'm glad Daya's out there. I'm not putting them down. I think there's a place for processed food, but I think there's also a place for real food, food that has nutrients because it's made from real food and it's made using uh, natural fermentation rather than, you know, opening up a bottle of flavors and dumping it in there. So just because I've always had more of an artisanal craft approach to food, I knew that I could do something. So it led to writing this book, but I had no interest in ever going into business again because I was convinced that I wasn't good at it. And what I really wanted to do was just empower people in their own kitchens to make food um, and to make their own cheese. Uh, but what I found interesting was that I wrote the book, the book became very popular. Um, but people just didn't want to make it. They were like, this is a hassle. We want you to start a company and we'll just buy your cheese. <laughs> and so um, a couple of years after I wrote the book, I started the company. Wow. So, so you're like the Colonel Sanders of the vegan Ooh. <laughs> world, right? So for those who don't know, the Colonel Sanders is, you know, he tried, tried again, you know, thought he was a failure. I think he... It was like 60, he was 65 years old or something by the time he got someone to buy his, his recipe for, for fried chicken. I didn't realize that essentially, you know, uh, born out of a, a midlife crisis, if I can call it that, you know, you were depressed, you snapped out of it. Um, what, what advice do you have for, for folks who are entering their second chapter? I mean, I, I think, you know, just living it with my, my parents were all living so much longer. We have to look at our lives very differently than maybe we did 50 or even 25 years ago where, you know, 50 was kind of like, you're thinking about retirement and 60, you're definitely retired, right? I mean, now you, you have multiple chapters. What, what advice do you have for folks who are entering that, that later stage of the game? Yeah, I love this topic because I started Miyoko's when I was 57. So I'm wow. going to be 64 next month. That and, is amazing. Um, and um, I, I just have so much energy. Um, and uh, I feel that I was not ready to have had all those businesses. I had to go through what I had to go through. And we all do. 
you can't expect a home run right out of college. Now, there are a handful of people that have achieved that in the technology field. And so we just assume that's all you have to do. But the fact is, most of us have to go around the block multiple times to learn the lessons we have to learn to get to the point where we are today. So, you know, I guess I, I often think of myself, people go, oh my God, like when I first started, wrote the cookbook or started Miyoko's, people were like, oh my God, she came out of nowhere. Yes, I'm a third, I'm an overnight success story, 35 years in the making. And it took me that long to get to where I am today. So if you're in your fifties and you're having that midlife crisis and you're trying to figure out, do I wind it down or do I try again? I think you're better poised than ever to start something new because you have the benefit of all that experience. And I, I see people in their twenties today who are so brilliant that have so much potential they don't have strength. You know, I, I think that emotional strength is just like building muscle. There's an emotional muscle that you build over time. And when you're in your fifties or sixties, you're actually stronger. You can handle more because you've been through it. I mean, I watch my, my kids who are in their mid twenties. I have a son who's 30. Um, he doesn't complain so much and he's on a different continent anyway. But when I um, look at my daughters who just crumble under just a little bit of pressure. And, you know, if they have to do get one thing done that day um, or you're like, oh my God, they're like, I had to work nine hours today. I'm like, I'm exhausted. I need to, I need to get into a hot tub and go to get spa therapy or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I work like 12 hours every day. And then I take the dogs for a run and then I might lift some weights and then, you know, I might write a book. I mean, it's like, you know, you get that. The reason I'm able to do that is because I built that muscle over time and, and young kids have to, are being exposed to problems for the first time. So it's painful. They crumble under the pressure. They have to build that up. Um, I think we're stronger as we get older. I mean, maybe not, you know, we, we're not as athletic as, as people in their twenties. I have a, uh, a 26 year old who, um, is a national, she competes nationally, um, She's Olympic weight, Olympic style weightlifting. Um, and obviously I can't compete with her. And, you know, I used to do CrossFit in my early fifties and, and now I still, you know, I, I don't have the time, but also I just, I'm much more prone to injury. It seems now. Um, so I have to be more careful when I do things, but aside, but from an emotional standpoint, a mental standpoint, I think we've built up that endurance. We're just better poised than ever to take on the world. And I would encourage everyone to rethink that. Yeah, you, you, uh, you use a number of, uh, or allude to a number of things that I often say, which is, uh, you know, people do have this conception of the overnight success because, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, right, they're, um, they're anomalies. Yeah. Right, totally. And, and, and the, there's actually good statistics on this stuff that I always like to repeat, because I, I hope it helps people recognize that when you're 27, and, and you're not living in Malibu in a $14 million home, like you're not a failure, right? Like, right. even though that's what it looks like compared to what, you know, Instagram shows you, but um, the average, you know, successful entrepreneur, however you describe that, um, started their company on average, after they were 40. Right. And they've had three companies prior before that one that is defined as successful. And yeah, I can totally say from 
from my vantage point, having, um, you know, not been around as many blocks as you perhaps, um, but, but certainly made my fair share of mistakes. And I will tell you every day, um, I recognize just how stupid I was yesterday and that yeah. can only imagine, you know, you do accumulate not only that emotional strength, like you say, um, but also experience. I didn't appreciate when I was a guy in my twenties. Um, but, uh, I, I certainly do now that ex- there is a lot to be said for experience, you know, uh, when your job is to make good decisions, turns out having made as many decisions as you possibly can over decades, um, you get better at it, you know? So, yeah. um, go yeah, ahead. failure, I think forms the building blocks to success. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, people just, people don't appreciate it. And I think there's a lot of self-loathing that goes on in um, the hearts of entrepreneurs who have failed. Um, and you know, it, it doesn't actually stop. I mean, I think even um, when you are successful, um, you continue to question yourselves. And I think actually the people that probably are poised for success are those that are going to question themselves, continue to question themselves, question, continue to grow. The growth doesn't stop just because you finally hit something that might be a home run. Um, you have to continually reevaluate things and you're going to f- run into new problems that you didn't encounter when you were a failure, but when you deemed yourself a failure before, because now your company is bigger. Um, and now you're going to run into bigger problems uh, that have to do with, you know, s- scaling or the demands that investors make or, or employee problems that you never encountered before because you were never challenged in this way before. There's always going to be some new problem, some new challenge, and we're always going to have to be, if, continue the evolution. We're going to have to continue evolving and learning. It never stops. Yeah, I think, I think it's such an important message to, to share, and not just for entrepreneurs, um, but, but for everyone, because you know, I think that it is so easy to fall prey to the um, uh, manufactured realities that we see on Instagram, and I'm only, you know, picking on them because of, of, uh, I think it's particularly, uh, susceptible where you're, you're following these people and and you see the highlight reel of their life. Right. And it's really easy to put that together, but you know, what you don't see is the constant state of paranoia, um, the constant, you know, and, and look, I think paranoia is a, is a great thing. It keeps you alive. Right. I mean, for me, at least I'm always assuming that everything is going to, break down in a matter of days, right? And, and by never, um, I think, uh, resting, which, you know, has its drawbacks for sure. Um, but but uh, instead, you're, you're constantly, you know, fighting through that friction, through the sludge. And, and you know, we can only be so lucky to, to end up in a place where, where, you know, and I don't mean to insinuate anything, but, but the success that you've experienced with Miyoko's and to your point, I think it's great that you're able to share bigger, you know, companies just means bigger problems, right? The stakes right. are just that much higher and, and you know, few, I, if any, actually break out from that, that, um, that gravitational pull, that, that sludge that we all have to go through. And I think, um, again, it's just important that, that we share that, that message openly because it's so easy to assume that everyone else has it easier. Um, but also because it, I think that uh, um, learning to enjoy that process, um, the difficulties, finding 
you know, those little celebrations uh, on the journey, um, it, to me, is the only way to get through it. No, it's, it's absolutely true. Um, I think social media can be a great uh, platform from communication, but most of the time it's used to um, highlight, you know, your best moments, as you say. And, and what that ends up doing is it just makes everyone else feel like, oh my God, why does my life suck? This person has the perfect life. And I think we need to tell more stories on social media. We need to use it to really communicate and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm going through and this is the reality. I mean, everything isn't easy. It's just, you know, the, it's interesting how, you know, the, the haters come out, the, the more successful you are, you get the haters that um, want to bring you down. And you see that with a lot of successful people, you look at their posts and you see you know, people are trying to nitpick and find the one thing they can say negative about you or whatever, whether it's true or not. Um, and it, it's, it's really sad because we're not building a culture that, um, that unites people, that, um, that helps to support people. And I think what we have to remember is that even people that we deem successful are also human. They're actually also people and they also have feelings and they're also, they have problems. Um, and, uh, you know, um, this is why sometimes you see celebrities, you know, like Rob, um, Michael Jackson, the most famous, or Robert, um, uh, what's his name, Robin Williams. I mean, it, people that we think, oh my God, they must have these amazing lives. And it turns out they're people, they have problems, they get really depressed. Maybe they get even more depressed. Um, and I, I wanna encourage people to, to be more open about what they're really going through and be more supportive. And, uh, you know, as we were all taught when we were kids, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. I mean, that, that's so important because it's so much easier to bring someone, to tear someone apart, bring them down than it is to help someone climb up and, and be better. And we should all be there to encourage each other to be our best selves. Yeah, well, I, I, I think you've uh, put it beautifully, and, and so I won't diminish it by, by trying to add to that. Um, maybe I'll attempt a, uh, a segue, it'll be a stretch, to uh, certain governmental agencies that have tried to keep you down. Um, I think I made that okay. Uh, yeah, you did. So, so the California Department of, was it Food and Agriculture, yeah. correct, a couple of years ago, um, uh, filed a complaint essentially because of some of the uh, claims and advertising that Miyoko and, and maybe some others, but I know uh, you were a target. Um, you even I think was mentioned like a picture of a woman hugging a cow. Yes. Um, and so that's been a, a drawn out legal battle that has recently come to an end. And I'm, I'm hopeful you can share a little bit about that experience and, and maybe we can use that as a launching point to to talk about the future of plant-based food. I yeah. can talk about the entrepreneurial side for the next hour and a half, but I think uh, to be fair to our audience and, and to your schedule, uh, we'll have to move more briskly to the next subject. Okay, well, yeah, absolutely. So the California Department of Food and Agriculture told us that we couldn't use the word butter. Uh, we also couldn't use the word lactose-free. Uh, we had to take down any pictures of uh, livestock off of our website, including that of a woman hugging a cow. You know, what we're trying to do at Miyoko's is change people's perceptions towards animals. 
we, we want people not to see animals as food. We want them to see animals as beings with whom we share this planet uh, and that become stewards of these animals, loving stewards and not exploiters. And so we think it's important to have pictures of animals interacting with humans in a very different way than the dairy industry might show. But the letter actually said that these pictures belong to the dairy industry, uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, so when we got this letter, um, we had no choice but to file a First Amendment violation lawsuit against the state of California. Now, I'm sorry, it, yes, it took uh, taxpayer dollars to fight this fight, but it was, it, um, you know, because they had to use their attorneys or whatever, but it was necessary. Now, why did they even bother to write us this letter? I'm guessing it's because they got complaints from uh, the dairy lobbyists in the state of California, because California is the largest dairy state in, in the United States. And people don't realize that. We often think of Wisconsin, they're the second, but California is the largest. So we have a very, very strong dairy lobby. And I am seen as an activist and, um, there was a letter actually very recently that we heard about from, actually I saw that actually went to every California dairy farmer from a California Dairy Association about watch out for Miyoko Shinner. She's an activist and she's trying to end animal agriculture. So there is, you know, I guess, cause I've been vocal about it. Um, there's a target on my back, I guess. And I guess this was one way to uh, quell our free speech. Um, we sued because we felt we weren't doing this just for us, you know, yeah, uh, but we were doing it for the entire industry because food is evolving and language has to evolve to reflect the changing consumer uh, landscape and what they're looking for. I mean, consumers are waking up, they're smart. They're waking up and saying, hey, these foods are destroying the planet, they're destroying my health, they're destroying animals, and we've got to change. And that's why our product is doing well. And that was the threat. If our products hadn't been doing well, <laughs> they would never have bothered to even send that letter to us. Um, and so this is, you know, this is the, the, the day of reckoning when we have to, consumers have to take um, responsibility and look at the future of food and say, well, I'm gonna participate in changing the future for the good. We can't rely on our government. We can't rely on the dairy industry. Um, it has to be innovative companies like ours and consumers. Anyway, so what ended up happening was we won just a couple of days ago in a summary judgment by the, um, by the judge who said the dairy industry or the state of California did not um, present compelling evidence that consumers were, were confused by the term butter, vegan butter. Um, because it used the qualifier vegan, made from plants, et cetera. So we are allowed to use butter. Uh, we can say revolutionizing dairy with, with plants. We can say lactose-free. We can say all these things. Um, so it's a huge victory, not only for us, but for the entire industry and for consumers that are trying to make change in how we eat in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those, you know, kind of on its face, you would look at it and just say, why wouldn't the dairy agriculture allow this, right? It's, you know, if they're thinking from a consumer standpoint, you put butter on toast, you put butter in, you know, whatever it is, right? Like, in, and you have plant-based butter, and then you have dairy-based, cow-based butter. I'm not even sure what you would call that. 
um, why wouldn't you allow that? Because it, it actually brings clarity, you know, and yeah. categorization, et cetera, more, more options for the consumers. So it really is just a function of trying to quell competition. So right. to your point though, it, it, it maybe is a good sign that, you know, it's an indication that they're, they're taking you so seriously because of, you know, how well you're doing and, and that, you know, change in consumer sentiment. So, um, Let's see where to go from there. Uh, uh, yeah, from from the standpoint of of being an activist, I mean, do you ever worry about your your personal safety? I mean, it it, it seems uh, crazy to imagine that the dairy industry would whatever you know, but there are crazier things that have happened when when billions of dollars of revenue is at stake. Uh, I I actually never have uh, worried about it. I mean, I don't think anyone's gonna do anything. I mean, we're not that big, uh, you know, yet, um, yet. Um, and also, you know, I also feel we have a program here. It's called the farm conversion program where we're trying to find a California dairy farmer and help them transition to growing crops to become part of the new economy. I mean, the reality is in the energy sector, uh, people are pushing back against coal and oil and, um, you know, there are industries, you know, coal miners and, and people in, the, in the, uh, the oil industry that are saying, why are you shutting down uh, offshore drilling or this pipeline? Because, you know, that's putting uh, families out of work. Um, but at some point we have to decide, are we going to protect the interests of, uh, a, you know, a, it's, it's a significant number, but still a smaller number of workers than, than the entire Earth's population. And right now, the Earth's population, the entire planet, is its its health is at stake. I mean, we could destroy this planet for all of humanity if we don't make changes to how we uh, produce energy and grow our food. And the and, and food, the agriculture is a huge part of of, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, land use, water resources, uh, climate change. In fact, it's. Um, it's been shown that it's it's even greater than all global transportation put together. We have to do something. And so, um, you know, it's not like the farmers are evil people. Trying, they're not out there deliberately trying to destroy the planet. They're just trying to put food on people's tables. Um, so let's help them do that in a different way. Let's help them be farmers, remain farmers, but let's help them grow crops that can actually help the planet heal rather than destroy the planet. That's a yeah, beautiful program. And, and I think they've they've actually shown, you know, what was it in uh, Finland or in Sweden? Yeah. I think it started off transitioning from from animal agriculture like berries or something. And I didn't even know berries could could grow that far north. But um, uh, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful thing that that we all have to put our end uh, put our uh, efforts behind. Um, a few more questions. Uh, one, just out of curiosity, you've always focused more on the um, high-end, you know, Epicurean, right? From from the days you were doing your cookbooks, even I think to today, um, Yoko's really is that that uh, I, I think more premium product. I, I I mostly mean that in terms of its taste, um, you know, because there are now a ton of um, what do you want to call it? Uh, sort of mass market alternatives. I mean, Kroger and you know Safeway and everyone is is now you know, putting on it. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. Right. But to your point, um, most of them, I, I think, fall into that kind of uh, territory like that uh, Dea, right? That is largely oil based, largely, um, you know, certainly not the, the kind of, uh, you know, cashew fermentation process that, that you have um, uh, uh, developed. How do you feel about, you know, as you enter into the market, we're trying to change the market, grow the market, starting off with that premium product to, to demonstrate how great this, this could be. Um, and then obviously as any uh, successful entrepreneur activist who's trying to change the world, um, I have to imagine your sites are really on the mainstream consumer to change every plate to be one that, you know, is, is, uh, has a Miyoko flourish. So I'm just curious when you start off at that high end, what, what are the plans to, to expand it to, to the more mainstream consumer? Well, we have uh, um, expanded to more mainstream consumers with products like cream cheese. Um, but definitely when I started the company, uh, there were not any options for premium products. And, uh, you know, you'll find just like with Tesla or most new technology, you start with, with what are called early adopters. And the early adopters usually have a little bit more disposable income. They're interested in things that are not just kind of ordinary, but they have that special sexy thing. And, you know, vegan cheese was kind of not on anyone's radar. And what was on people's radar was like, ha ha, that's pretty funny, or that's disgusting, or tastes like plastic. And so I really was out there to prove that it could be amazing, that it could be on anyone's dinner table anywhere, that you could gift it, you could be proud of it. I wanted something that made people proud. Um, And so that's why I had to start with a high end product. But our goal always has been able to was been has been to be able to reach the mainstream audience um, at every price point. And uh, so, you know, while initially I started out with products that were 10 to $12, we introduced the mozzarella and the butter that were $5.99, $6.99. And, and now we're entering, um, we launched um, these slices and shreds last year, which I'm not thrilled with actually, and we're reform- in the process of reformulating. Um, but, you know, this is our goal is to be able to produce products that are at the same game-changing quality, but at a lower price point that we can make uh, at a lower price point as we scale. Um, so that's also really important is gaining those economies of scale, you know, which we didn't have initially when I had a 2000 square foot little artisanal, you know, <laughs> crafts, a little, com- little, you know, place where I was making cheese and, you know, using ice cream scoopers. <laughs> so, um, and packing things by hand. Um, so, you know, we've been able to get better margins, obviously, as we've scaled. Um, we also work with co-manufacturers. Um, so the goal definitely is to be able to provide uh, products at a lower price point. But I don't think we're ever going to be the low price point leader. We're always going to be, we'll be, we'll be able to play in that field, but we're going to be perhaps, you know, just a little bit more expensive in whatever uh, tier we're, we're playing in than the competition. But that's because our products are going to always be organic. They're going to be made from real food and they're going to have nutrition. So we're, you know, one, one thing that athletes will be really excited by is that uh, we're launching a cottage cheese. And uh, uh, this is made out of um, one, ing- one particular seed that's very high in protein. And it's going to have 10 to 13 grams of protein per serving. 
So there, there is no vegan cheese with that kind of nutritional profile, but that's what we're interested in doing is starting out with a nutrient dense plant milk and then turning it into cheese um, or butter. Um, and that's our approach. It's not how do I uh, create a replica or an analog using, you know, I don't know, a um, bunch of oils and starches and natural flavors. How do I, but how do I make real food out of real food? And that's our approach. Yeah. Um, there's two directions I want to take this. I'll let you decide since we're, we're going to run out of time soon. Um, one is you often hear uh, the smartest people say that price parity is ultimately how we're going to you know, win this game. Because if you can you know, buy um, you know, a pound of ground beef for X and, and you know, the, uh, the analog to that meat is four times as expensive, unfortunately, consumers don't understand that we have all sorts of uh, governmental stimulus uh, call it subsidies, yeah. right? Um, yep. That are that are actually you know putting the the hand on on the scale in a way that that really makes it difficult to reach price parity. Um, when in fact, if you'd remove those, we'd see a little bit different uh, shelf. Um, do you think price parity is going to be the big market mover? Not to say anything about Miyoko's and and look, I, I I'm a big fan of you know premium products that are organic, real foods, paying, you know, farmers, living wages, all those things, it costs money, right? Um, but just more broadly, when you look at consumer goods, you know, is it going to be price parity or is it going to be sort of the activism, consumer demand, waking up the, the documentaries, right? That, that ultimately just changes the perception of these products and, and there's more willingness to pay even if they're not, you know, on par with the, the animal analog. Yeah, well, so my answer to that is, uh, yes, uh, price parity is going to be very, very important. But I think more important for the long term is uh, changing. This is not a, a uh, this is saying the opposite of what the smartest people in the room would say, because they're going to say you can't change people's opinions. You can't change them fast enough. But we actually have begun to change people's opinions very, very quickly. And I think the only real way to make lasting change for the goodness of humanity is to change human consciousness, uh, to see animals not as food, but as beings with whom we share this planet, as I said before. And we have to touch people's lives. We have to tell these stories. And um, yeah, we can reach price parity, that's, that's great. But then what if something happens and all of a sudden animal products become even cheaper? Um, you know, I, I don't think we win just on price parity alone. And also I think that diminishes the intelligence of people. It just sort of puts most people, I like to, uh, to think about um, Plato's cave and, um, uh, in the Republic where he, you know, Plato talks about, Socrates talks about most people live in a cave and what they think is real life are just shadows on the wall of, of the light streaming in. And if they were to go up and, and, and exit the cave, they would be blinded by the actual, by actual life, by the, sun, by the sunlight. And uh, in some ways, this idea that we just have to reach price parity, we just have to change the, the product itself, and we don't have to change consciousness, is buying into the belief that humans can't change, that he, we are all just these, these automatons 
in a cave reacting, unable to make decisions on our own. And that goes against activism in my part. Every actual overcoming of any human injustice in the world started with people, started with people marching in the streets and calling out injustice. It didn't start with a government leader saying, I'm changing the law today. And it didn't start because, I don't know, um, you know some, some product was, got cheaper all of a sudden. It started out with humans crying out injustice. And of course it's taken thousands of years. I mean, you know, 50% of, of Athens consisted of slavery and we only recently outlawed slavery recently. Um, and, and it still goes on. But for the most part, things are changing much faster now. And I, I am a, maybe I'm, call me naive. Maybe I'm just as hopeless um, uh, optimist but I really do believe that if we're going to give humankind a chance at the survival of this planet, we have to work towards uh, changing people's hearts and we can't give up on that. Uh, price parity is a great way for investors to make money. It's a great way for, for companies to succeed. Um, and they're gonna need to be part of this. They're gonna need to be there to, um, provide the solution when we do awaken people's eyes. But, you know, I have a much more spiritual view of this. I believe that we're here on this planet because uh, we're, we're on a journey to figure something out. And it isn't just price parity. It's, it's really about changing the hearts of every single human being, because if we don't change their hearts, the next time something cheap comes along, they're just going to go to that. And who knows what that, that could be. It could be anything else. It could be something really damaging that we haven't even imagined yet. It could be, um, we've decided there's too many humans on this planet. And so we're just going to turn them into meat and that's cheaper than anything else because we haven't changed their hearts. We need to change people's hearts. Well, I, uh, I could go on and on. Um, but I think that is such a beautiful sentiment to, to end on. Um, this conversation has uh, exceeded my expectations in more than one way, but the fact that we covered both Colonel Sanders and the allegory of the cave in one conversation is, is outstanding. Um, so uh, Miyoko, is there one more um, idea, one call to action, something you wanna leave our listeners with today? If not, I think you just did, you know, a, a call to action for all of us to be those activists in the streets, you know, trying to change hearts and minds. But if there is something else um, or a particular product that they have to go try uh, at their local um, supermarket, uh, I'll, I'll give you the last word. Okay, well, we covered Colonel Sanders. We covered the allegory of the cave. Now we'll cover Ted Lasso. So one word, believe. <laughs> Okay, fair, fair enough. And for those who haven't tried, of course, go and uh, buy all the Miyoko's products at your local supermarket. You won't be, um, uh, you won't be uh, uh, sad that you did. And, and again, Miyoko, thank you so much for creating all these wonderful goodies that uh, have made my wife's cheese boards finally whole again because without you, you know, we just wouldn't be able to entertain in our home. So thank you again. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure.